welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on the New York Knicks. I'm here with Luke Hickey. Luke, how are you doing? I'm really good, man. Yourself? Doing pretty good. Let's get started with a review of the Knicks offseason. Their biggest acquisition, certainly in terms of name recognition, was Derek Rose. They traded away their starting center, Robin Lopez, and recent draft pick, Jaron Grant. Now, Rose is never going to be the player that he was during his absolute peak in Chicago, and it was sad to see the league robbed of someone who looked like such a promising young player, but he's still only 27. He's still got a career ahead of him. How has Derek looked so far in New York? To be honest, he's not been the same player that he has been in the past, but I think that's okay. He's been playing at a level that's pretty comparable to his levels last year in terms of numbers, although... Funnily enough, he's been finishing with better production closer to the rim. So it almost does seem like a little bit of athleticism has come back for him. Like he's definitely finishing with contact a lot better than I saw in his last year in Chicago. He's still not the best shooter. I really don't like it when he settles for those pull-up long twos. But the best thing about him, and the reason why I think he's such an integral part of our offense, is his ability to drive to the rim and create which he's been incredible at for us. He's been such an upgrade over our last season starting point guard, Jose Calderon. So I'm a big fan of Derek Rose being on the Knicks. I think that's one of the biggest things to consider when you're talking about Rose is even if he's not the player that he was during his absolute peak, the Knicks aren't looking for him to be that player. They just need him to be better than what they got out of Calderon last season. And so far, he's been that. The interesting thing for me about Rose is his splits in the second half of last year were a lot better than his splits at the start of the year. Before the All-Star break, he was shooting a little under 41%. After the All-Star break, he shot almost 47% from the floor. And I think that orbital bone fracture early in the year for him really skewed his stats even more than might have been skewed by him trying to recover from that knee injury. I mean, he just, he was having trouble seeing. There were reports of him having double vision. And as that started to go away, he looked like a much more efficient player down the stretch of last season. Yeah, and he's definitely shown a lot of that even in like the, what, I think we've had 19 games so far this season? 18, 19? 18, yeah. Yeah, so still only through a pretty small percentage of the season, but yeah, I, I very much like having Derrick Rose as a starting point guard for the Knicks. If we can keep him on a reasonable deal, I'm all for it. Another interesting thing about the Knicks is they didn't just replace their starting point guard, but they also replaced their backup point guard. They added Brandon Jennings from the Magic on a surprisingly cheap, at least to me, given his production last season, one-year, $5 million contract. Brandon's had his up and downs so far, but in general, he's looked like a pretty solid backup point guard, especially given the Knicks situation at lead guard last season. I love Brandon Jennings. Um, one of my favorite NBA writers, Jason Conception, posted a status on Twitter that pretty much summed it up for me, where he said that Brandon Jennings is my favorite player who isn't very good. 
and that's pretty much how I feel about him. He's not the best player. In fact, he makes a lot of terrible decisions. Like, he's still got that Jenningsness to him where, you know, there'll be at least a couple of pull-up threes in the, you know, like a few seconds into the shot clock per game. But you kind of live with that because he's an incredible leader of the second unit. He's had a couple of games this year where he's had at least 10 assists coming off the bench. There's been a few games where he actually closes out in the fourth quarter in lieu of Rose. His shooting is not good. He's a bit of a chucker and not the best I guess, decision-maker. But otherwise, yeah, that one-year $5 million deal was an absolute steal for him. His three-point percentage is actually down to 31% at this point, but that's also coming off a not-as-strong last few games from behind the three-point line. He had a 0-for-4 night against Portland a few games ago. He's historically been a relatively solid three-point shooter, but relatively inefficient player overall. The thing that I think stands out most to me about Jennings so far is his assist to turnover ratio is great, which is really useful for the Knicks, especially since Derrick Rose has struggled with his with his turnovers so far. Although he's down under three a game now, which is better than he had been. Let's talk quickly about Joe Camnella. The Knicks signed him arguably before the pre-agent moratorium had ended. Reports came out a couple of days before the July 1st date, but it's sad to me to watch Noah this year, because I've been a big Joakim Noah fan for a very, very long time, and something just seems to be missing now. He's averaging three assists in 22 minutes a game. Passing has always been his greatest offensive strength, but he's down at 47% from two-point range, and 28.6% from the line. He's rebounding decently, but his his defensive numbers just aren't where they need to be for someone who really doesn't contribute on offense outside of passing. Yeah, it's a bit of a situation with Noah at the moment because he's, as you said, like he he is a pretty versatile mobile center. He he can do quite a few things that most centers can't, but he isn't doing the one thing that he was brought in to do and, you know, as a former defensive player of the year that's played defense. He did have one game where he did have an eighteen rebound game pretty recently. But yeah, apart from that, that's that's been like the, the outlier. In in a lot of ways Kylo Quinn is the better defensive center than him at the moment, unless Joaquin gets right in some way. I, I'm not too sure what the problem is, but yeah, it just sucks when, because there is, at least in my opinion, very few things that need work on in regards to the Knicks offense, but our defense could certainly use some skill, so uh, some improvement. And yeah, I guess Noah just isn't doing what he was brought in to do at this point. So he had an 18 rebound game against the Raptors, including eight offensive rebounds. He is currently tied with Kylo Quinn for the lowest defensive rating on the team at 106, but Joakim Noah is being paid $18 million a year to be a defensive anchor, and the Knicks are currently 24th in opponents' points per game and 28th in defensive rating. Yeah, it it, it really, because part of it as well is that there's, I I don't know what you've read about, like there's a lot of Knicks fans who believe that it's almost a given that Porzingis will be moved over to center, Carmelo will be played at the four. And one of the issues we're seeing even with Noah is that he's just getting manhandled a little bit. And I feel like that's 
pretty much what's going to happen to Kristaps if he gets moved over to the center position before his time. I, I'm not too sure how we could improve with Noah, how he could improve. It is starting to look a little bit like a free agency bust. I really don't want to admit. We'll talk about the Porzingis at center thing later because talking about Porzingis is always fun. But let's move on to talking about Courtney Lee. Courtney Lee has been for many, many years, in my opinion, very underrated because he's one of those guys who is very good at what he does, which is three-point shooting and playing defense, and doesn't try and extend himself to do things that he can't do, which I think is actually a really, really useful NBA skill. He doesn't hurt a team. He's in the right place on defense, he tries hard on defense, and he's not going to shoot you out of a game by chucking up shots, he's not going to throw the ball away, and he started all 18 of New York's games so far this season, is a shade under 30 minutes a game, he had an ankle injury, he tweaked his ankle in their last game against the T-Wolves, which was an awesome game to watch. Hopefully he won't be out for long, because he's really been a solid piece for this team so far. What are your thoughts on how he's fit in thus far in the young season? Yeah, I, I agree with everything that you basically just said about Courtney Lee. He's been everything that we, we thought he would be you know, in the offseason when we signed him. His numbers this season are pretty much identical to his career numbers. Funnily enough, at the moment, he's averaging 45% from uh, beyond three point arc. That probably won't hold over time, but yeah, he, he's usually in the high 30s or 40% from three-point range. He's always been a good three-point shooter. His defense has been pretty good as well. He had quite a few moments where he's just locked up players. I, I really like him as just, a, yeah, as you said, like he doesn't really play out of his position, doesn't demand the ball. He's a very stabilizing force on both the offense and defensive end of the floor, and I mean, stability in the Knicks just haven't been going together for years. So to actually have a guy like, you know, Courtney Lee, where you can just depend on every night, okay, he's probably going to get at least 10 points and a steal and, you know, this, that, and the next. It's really refreshing. It's also really helpful for a Knicks team that has three guys who need to use a lot of offensive possessions in Rose, Carmelo, and Porzingis. Although you could argue about whether Rose needs offensive possessions. He certainly uses them. But it's helpful to have someone like Courtney Lee who is going to play hard on defense and shoot well from three-point range without really demanding the ball a lot. Now, the Knicks also have a group of rookies that have been getting a surprising amount of minutes, at least from what I sort of expected them to get early in the season. Willie Hernan Gomez has been a key rotation piece. Nindagus Kuzminskis has played a little bit less, but has still definitely contributed. And Ron Baker and Marshall Plumlee have gotten bits and pieces of time here and there. But I guess I wanted to focus more on Hernan Gomez and Kuzminskis. They've both been really solid pieces for a New York bench that I think has been a lot better than I expected them to be coming into the season. Yeah, for sure. So what are your thoughts on the two of them? And I guess especially Hernan Gomez, because the Knicks have a lot of front court players and, you know, they need to get solid minutes for Kristaps, obviously. Carmelo is going to spend a lot more time at the four as his career moves on. You have Noah, who I think is still worth a pretty sizable rotation role, even if he isn't the player that he once was, just because he's one of the few <laughs> defensive-focused big men they have. You have Kyla Quinn, who some games is 
fantastic, and some games just makes you want to shake your head. But Hernan Gomez has actually played more minutes than O'Quinn so far this season. Do you think that's a trend that will continue? Do you think he'll sort of settle into a smaller role as the season goes on? Hernan Gomez, when he first started getting minutes in the regular season, classic rookie mistakes like picking up the touch fouls, stupid mistakes in the post, that kind of thing. He definitely showed a, a lot of talent and scoring ability, but yeah, he, he would just soak up fouls a bit too much. And I think in the in the past, you know, four or five games, he's kind of like learned to rein it in a little bit. So, so Hornacek's, you know, letting him do his thing a little bit more, giving him more minutes. The thing with both Hernan Gomez and O'Quinn is that, um, yeah, we do have a bit of a logjam at front court, but with Noah's injury history, one of those things that's, I guess, kind of necessary, at least, you know, you can kind of understand the thought process behind decisions. Kuzminskis, like what I've seen from him so far, I don't know much, like many of his numbers off the top of my head, but he seems to have like a pretty good basketball IQ, um, even if he, he's had a few games where like his shooting hasn't been up to scratch, but he, he's always made like the right pass, the right basketball play. The thing with Kuz, though, is that he's 27, whereas Hernan Gomez is 22. So whether he's as much as the plan of the next part going forward as Hernan Gomez is, arguably maybe not because of the age difference, but I, I still do like what he brought to the table this year. Ron Baker and Marshall Plumley. Ron Baker hasn't really been getting many minutes at all, and Marshall Plumley, he has had some games I think he's played. He, he's a, just a straight-up hustling big white dude. <laughs> He really shows effort and hustle on the defensive end, and he, he really looks like he wants to be there. But yeah, like he's a high-effort, big white dude. <laughs> the interesting thing for me about Kuzminskis is he's one of four players on the Knicks who have a better net rating than 0, 0.0, which I'm discounting Marshall Plumley because he's only played 25 minutes so far, but it is funny to note that his offensive rating is 188 and his defensive rating is 108, but obviously that emphasizes way too small to be useful, but in the positive net rating category, you've got Porzingis, you've got Noah, which is interesting to me. I think that's mainly because he gets to play with the starters. You have Kylo Quinn, and then you have Kuzminskis. And Kuzminskis has the second worst, well, I guess third, because there are two people tied for first in terms of worst defensive rating on the team, but he's also got a 117 offensive rating, which is better than anyone who gets major minutes besides Kristaps Porzingis. He's shot 41% from three, which is, I think, pretty impressive, given that a lot of guys coming over from European leagues take a little bit longer to adjust to the NBA three-point line. He's already shooting well from there. He's averaging a little under two threes a game in a little over 11 minutes, so... He's got the shooting touchdown already, which is going to be useful for this team moving forward. We got into this a little bit already, but just moving from the offseason acquisitions into the season overview, the big question with the big man rotation that we haven't gotten to yet is something that you brought up in passing earlier. Does Kristaps belong at center long term? I think he does. I think it's been remarkable that he's been able to keep up playing at the four given just how massive he is but i think that with his shooting touch and ability to score from so many different areas on the floor he's just more useful as a guy who can drag opposing rim protectors out beyond the three-point line and basically force teams to make really tough choices defensively do you think he's 
big enough yet to start at center, do you think he needs at least another year of development before he can really play there full-time? Yeah, I, I would like to see another year of development before he really starts to play significant minutes at the center position. There's definitely been a few games. Oklahoma City was a pretty notable one where he, he gets pretty handled by bigger, more physical dudes down the post. In the Minnesota game, we had, even though Porzingis wasn't playing on Towns for a lot of it, we had no one who could match Towns. I'm not sure that's fair, though, because there aren't really any teams that have anyone who can match Towns, especially when he's going for 47 and 18. Oh, oh, that was hard to watch. Hey, you won. It couldn't have been that hard to watch. I definitely see the value in playing Porzingis at the five, giving him significant minutes at center. I guess my only question or like follow-up to that would be who would be playing the four in his place. Obviously, the big one is that Carmelo would be playing the four. I feel like our, our rebounding would suffer as Carmelo ages, and if he's playing most of the game at the power forward position, if he's, what, going to be 33, 34 years old at this time, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm just being a bit skeptical about it. But yeah, I, I guess that's maybe why I'm not sold on it just yet. But I, I feel like it could be like a something viable in the future. The Knicks are almost exactly league average in rebounds at this point in the season. They're currently sitting in 16th. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Joe Kim Noah, for all his offensive woes, has been a solid rebounder so far for them. And when you're talking about playing Carmelo at the four, on the one hand, that does present potential rebounding problems, as you discussed. But I think, on the other hand, that opens the door for some of the Knicks' best possible lineups when you can have opposing teams forced into making ridiculously difficult choices in terms of how they're going to guard a Knicks front court of Anthony and Porzingis. Although I guess the issue with that, and we'll sort of use this to pivot into talking about the wing and guard rotation, on the one hand, people often talk about how Porzingis' long-term position is the center, and he needs to get minutes there, and I do think that's fair to bring up. I do think his long-term position is the center. But if you move Porzingis to center and Carmelo to the four, especially with Lance Thomas hurt, who do you who do you play at the three? They don't have, I think, any viable candidate for starting at small forward if you do make that lineup shift down. Right now, if we were to bring out that lineup, it would be, if not Lance Thomas, then it would be Kuzminskis. Could you run maybe Courtney Lee at the three and then go small with Rose and Jennings? Or maybe, I guess maybe better than that would be running out Justin Holiday. But that does present the problem that any lineup that isn't running mellow at the three is bound to have a weak link somewhere in the chain and maybe that's a good argument for why noah should continue to start just because even if nick's best long-term solution is porzingis at center it creates holes for them when they make those lineup shifts yeah there's definitely something to what you just said i think jeff warnishak figured out pretty early into the season that the knicks get their best results when the starters have staggered minutes so while the bench unit is on at least one of Rose, Porzingis, or Melo needs to be playing along with them, I think that's kind of true that there's always going to be like a weak link or at least someone who's just a non-offensive player playing. The problem is, is that, you know, obviously Noah, if he's going to be part of that, he needs to at least be playing solid defense. Lance Thomas, at least, you know, before he went down, was playing pretty good defense. It was more his offense that was a question. But yeah, at, at this point, it would be, yeah, Kuzminska slotted into the three. 
Yeah, I have a hard time answering that question. It is a difficult look for the Knicks to try and fill that in. And I remember watching their game against Charlotte, and you brought up staggering briefly. Hornacek took Porzingis out with 8.20 left in the first quarter and played him a lot with the bench in that game. The thing about Porzingis is, on the one hand, an offensive threat from pretty much anywhere. Synergy has him in the 94th percentile overall offensively. But the two areas in which he is actually below average are coming off screens and on isolation plays. So he's very good at scoring when he has guys around him who can create space, which I think is why playing with Carmelo has been arguably more helpful than it has been hurtful, even though Carmelo (laughs) takes a lot of his shots away. But the issue with running Porzingis with those bench lineups is those guys often struggle to to score outside of Kylo Quinn, who's shooting 52% so far, and Kuzminskis, who's been spacing the floor well. Yeah, although I will add that Justin Holiday's been quite serviceable for us coming off the bench as well, even though he doesn't put up staggering numbers. That's good to mention. Holiday has been helpful for them so far. He's also shooting 38% from three, and he's one of the few guys, I think, on this roster that I would consider a true wing, a true 2-3 kind of player. The other guys, like Kuzminskis is, Kuzminskis is really just a straightforward. Courtney Lee is a little bit on the small side for playing small forward regularly, although he's, he's pretty much a true wing player as well. Let's move on to your recent article for Hashtag Basketball, titled, Who is the Knicks' Best Player? Carmelo Anthony or Kristaps Porzingis? And first of all, I think it's incredible that we can have that kind of discussion, have that kind of genuine discussion about Porzingis in his second season. But let's talk about the case for Carmelo really quickly. What do you think is the case for Carmelo still being the lead dog on this team? He's earned his right to be the leader of the team. No, I, I think he's the uh, longest tenured Nick on the on the roster at all now. He's definitely been here the longest, especially coming off his Olympic victories in the in the off season. I think he's even though you know the the mark on Melo until he wins a championship will be he hasn't won a championship. But I think the Olympic credentials aren't to be sniffed at either. I think even though like Melo can seem a bit prickly at sometimes to you know members of the media or on social media, I think he definitely has a genuine heart and cares about this team and, and wants to see the young guys develop and. Part of me definitely thinks it's a bit of a media-driven narrative that he's taken shots away from Porzingis. I mean, it, definitely in the past few games that he's certainly run cold shooting-wise. But I think he genuinely wants to see this team grow. He wants to be part of that. And he's as much of a part as, of Nick's folklore as, you know, maybe not like Patrick Ewing. But he's definitely, like, I guess in our Parthenon to, to be still considered to be the leader of the team, even though Porzingis is showing quite a lot of potential. I think it is interesting about Melo to think about whether people will remember him more as a Nugget or a Nick, and I think that is sort of in the process of changing. But if I were to make the case for Melo, he just has more of a history of being a solid offensive player. And while Porzingis has gotten off to a great start, he also got off to a great start last season and then faded noticeably down the stretch. So I think it's worth not pushing the train too far in favor of Porzingis. Not that I don't love Porzingis because I do love Porzingis. (laughs) He's just so much fun to watch. But Melo's also more of a facilitator than Porzingis. And 
I think when you're talking about lead dog on offense, someone who's going to have the ball in their hands a lot. Mello is down to 2.6 assists so far this season, but last season was his career high in assists at 4.2. A lot of people have viewed Mello as a chucker for a lot of his career, which is not entirely unfair, but he has been a lot more willing to pass the ball, especially since he's had Porzingis on the team. But moving from that, if you're going to talk about the best player between Anthony and Porzingis, you got to make the case for Porzingis as well. So what do you think stands out in terms of points in Kristaps's favor over Carmelo as the next best player at this point? Well, in his second year, Porzingis is almost matching Carmelo Anthony's points per game output. I'm not too sure if Melo's off the top of my head. I think it might be around 24 points per game, and Porzingis's is just under 22 at the moment. Melo is currently at 22.2 points a game, and Porzingis is at 21.4 points per game. Although that is a little bit skewed by the fact that in their previous game, Kristaps had 29, and Melo memorably went four for 15 before hitting the final game-winning shot, which, you know, <laughs> says a lot about Melo in and of itself. But at the same time, I feel like, again, don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I feel like Porzingis is a much more efficient shooter than Melo is at the moment. Absolutely from three-point range. Maybe on the, you know, isolation two plays, Melo's got him a little beat, but as teams put a premium on three-point shooters, and if Porzingis is a really good three-point shooter, that has to be considered. Another thing is obviously Porzingis's abilities on the defensive end, where he's just a monster. I feel like he's at least can hold that over Anthony in terms of who we're going to build around going forward. Is this going to be Anthony's team, or is it going to be we're now going to defer to this young Latvian? But yeah, I think the point I eventually made in my article, the way I wrapped it up, was Porzingis is the best player, but Carmelo Anthony is unquestionably the leader. All the players defer to him. Even Porzingis is, in numerous interviews, pretty much quashed the whole, like, does Porzingis hate playing with Melo, etc., etc., that kind of stuff. He's gone on record a number of times basically saying that he loves playing with Melo, always defers to him. I think that's just how, that's how I feel about it. Porzingis is definitely the guy to build around going forward. Surely the player with the most potential that Carmelo's earned the right to pull himself top dog. Porzingis is not only a better defender than Melo, but I think he plays a more important position defensively than Melo. But you did bring up the notion that people occasionally talk about that maybe Carmelo is hindering Kristaps' development. And the only thing I can think of in response to that is that if Porzingis had been taken by the Sixers one pick earlier, if they'd taken Kristaps instead of Julio Okafor, which wasn't really on the table. I mean, that draft had a very, very set top three in Towns, Russell, Okafor, and then everyone else. But I don't think Kristaps would be anywhere near the player he's been so far this season if he didn't have someone like Carmelo Anthony to draw the attention of other defenses and to let him make occasional mistakes. I mean, the floor is so much more open for Porzingis than it would have been in Philly, where he would have just had two guys on him at all times. And I think that's been incredibly important for his development. I think you're definitely right about that. <laughs> one of the things I was talking about with one of my friends the other day was the fact that Mario Hezonia was taken, I think, with the fifth pick, so just after Porzingis. And just imagining what that would have been like, like Porzingis in an Orlando Magic jersey, the kind of numbers he would be putting up, and, you know, conversely, what Hezonia would be doing in a Knicks uniform. 
And, and yeah, it really is hard to imagine that he would have the same kind of breakouts that he would playing with Melo, playing in, the, in New York. He's really seemed to, even from that infamous drafting the kid taking selfies and whatnot, he's really welcomed New York and basically given every indication that he really wants to play here. So... Yeah, I guess with that whole, you know, benefit of hindsight and whatnot, but you can look back on it now and think, wow, it really was a good place for him to end up. And on that point, I think the Knicks needed someone like Porzingis with his potential far more than they would have needed someone like Okafor, who so far in his NBA career has shown that he's very good at the things that people thought he would be good at, namely low post scoring and very shaky in some other important areas like defense, where Porzingis has already shown that he can be a game-changer. Let's wrap up by going through some of the best and worst Knicks games from this season. Now, we discussed earlier how they've had some struggles on defense, that they're 24th in points allowed per game, 28th in defensive rating. They're 16th in points per game and 14th in offensive rating but they currently stand at 9-9. and And going into this season, I saw the Knicks as one of the more high-variability teams in the league. I thought they could be either a mid-to-low playoff seed or a 30-win team and pretty much anywhere in between. So far, they're right in the middle. They're literally at 500. They are 7th out of 15 in the Eastern Conference. I think they're best win so far this season has been their huge win against the Bulls in their fifth game. The Bulls have been a very surprisingly solid team to start the season, and the Knicks beat them by 13 in Chicago. I read the post-game analysis that was posted on Hashtag Basketball. It was a really good breakdown of how we read the Chicago sets and uh, what we did in, in regards to that. Anyway, I did see that game. It was really good. I think my favorite game for this season so far happened a few games after that. My favorite game of this season was the win against the Atlanta Hawks. I really wasn't expecting a win from that. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking Dwight would just beast on Porzingis. Like, he's had a couple of games, mostly like in the season previous, where Dwight has just dunked all over Porzingis, and it really hurts me to see him doing that to my baby boy. <laughs> yeah, the Knicks played really well. We played defense really well, which was a big question going into that game, just how, how are the Knicks going to defend against anyone? And in the following games after, we then had consecutive victories against Portland and Charlotte, if I remember correctly. So the Atlanta game was kind of like when things started clicking for us, I think, or at least, you know, we started to listen to a few of the things. I say we like I'm part of the team. <laughs> but they started to listen to like, okay, we, we do need to get better on the defensive end. Communication needs to be more key. And it really paid off in that stretch of three games, starting with the one in Atlanta. So that would be my favorite for the season so far. That was a quality win for them. And the Hawks sort of started to free fall right around then as well. But it was important for this mixed team, especially given that they have struggled a lot on defense this season, to hold the team under 100. This is actually only the third game of the season where they held the team under 100 points, and the other two were against the Nets and the Mavericks, so not exactly teams that are going to be playoff contenders. So that was a great win for them. Now, on the other side, we need to talk about some of the more brutal losses the Knicks have had. They opened the season with an almost 30-point drubbing at the hand of the Cavs. 
And then after the aforementioned win against Brooklyn, they lost 115 to 87 against the hated division rival Boston Celtics. What did you see in those games that stood against some of their stronger performances that we just discussed? I guess because those games were at the start of the season, there were, there were a few things just like like lack of communication, defensive awareness, and even though like the bench unit is, is playing quite well now, they really weren't at the start of the season. I think since then there's been quite a lot of a lot of humility, I guess coming through, uh, players realizing that, okay, maybe we're not the, the vaunted super team we made ourselves out to be. We do have things that we need to work on, and, and I feel like they are working on it. With that being said, though, it, even in those losses, this team, this Knicks team this year, has been the funnest to watch in almost, what, three, four, five years now? So you take even those losses were taken with a grain of salt because it's like, oh, I, I can at least see something that resembles a basketball game, even though it was, a you know, as you said, a 30-point drubbing against Cleveland on the season opener. I, I think those losses at the start of the season were more reflective of just, you know, shaking off rust, so to speak, more so than, like, real embedded character flaws. You mentioned the hope that surrounds this team now, and I think that's maybe the biggest part of the Porzingis effect. This team is a lot more fun now with him on board being the unicorn that he is. In the past couple of years, some of the lineups we've trotted out have just been Carmelo Anthony and then Iman Shumpert at shooting guard before he got traded, I guess, and then guys like Sam Delambert starting at center. Just real bottom of the basket who are these NBA players and, you know, older veterans like Lou Amundsen. So for a couple of years, it was pretty bad in New York, but you could at least kind of see what they're doing. And now it kind of feels like we're into the upswing of things now where we are improving. We are getting younger with the players that we're bringing on board. And yeah, it genuinely feels like there's more of an identity as well. There was a play at the start of the season. It, it wasn't even the season, actually. It was in preseason where, during a preseason game, Brandon Jennings got in the face of some rookie in a game against Atlanta. And then all over the internet the next day, it was like, the next Anthony Mason, Brandon Jennings. Like, people got a little bit too far into like, okay, this isn't going to be like the Patrick Ewing next, but it's going to be something. My favorite Brandon Jennings moment from so far this season was in... The last game against the Timberwolves, actually, when Ricky Rubio comes off the screen behind the three-point line, and Brandon Jennings is just standing, like, ten feet inside the arc, literally just staring at him. It was like, go ahead, you can, you can shoot it. I don't <laughs> care. Just daring him to shoot in the most hilariously obvious way possible. Yeah, he has this classic, I guess, Brandon Jennings taunt where he'll clap in the face of a guy who's just picked up a foul on him or something really incessantly and annoyingly, like right up in their face. It's just the classic, this guy's kind of good, not as good as he should be bragging out to be, but I love his balls for it. Oh, he's so, he's so New York. He's such a wonderful fit for this franchise just personality-wise, almost more than uh, basketball-wise. Yeah, if the price is right for Jennings, I wouldn't mind bringing him back next year. But again, yeah, it would be more for his, his personality more than anything else. All right, anything else you want to go over before we wrap up here? No, dude, that was pretty comprehensive. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And thanks to all of you for listening. He's Luke Hickey. You can find him on Twitter at Burrito Rain. B-U-R-R-I-T-O-R-A-I-N. You can find me on Twitter at NBA underscore Johnson, N-B-A underscore J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can follow the hashtag basketball website on Twitter at hash basketball. 
H-A-S-H-B-A-S-K-E-T-B-A-L-L. You can also read both of our work on the Hashtag Basketball website, hashtagbasketball.com. So if you enjoyed what you heard and what you've been hearing over the past few weeks, please leave a rating or a review. Please also feel free to get in touch with me if you have any feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.